In our lesson this morning, we looked at the book of Hebrews, and we looked uh, particularly at the passage from really the end of chapter 10 to the beginning of chapter 12. In that time, there's this lengthy discussion about the need that Christians have for endurance. The Christian life is hard, and in certain times and places, it's, it's even harder when persecution uh, and, and, and difficulties and tribulations arise, but it's always difficult. It's difficult to live a life of self-denial in obedience to Jesus when so many people around you aren't doing that. It's difficult to be thought of as the fool or the oddball, the, the irrational person who uh, believes myths that, uh, that you know, people uh, often look down upon. It's difficult to be thought of as the person who is the fundamentalist or the person who uh, has the rigid morals. It's difficult to live in a world where there's pressure on you from all sorts of angles and from different sides and from different worldviews and beliefs. And what can happen, especially when loved ones you care about, either are not part of the faith or leave the faith. And people you go to the office with don't have any idea what your worldview is even all about. And you turn on TV and the things that might be enjoyable to watch are the things that you, you see them and it's, it's like Christianity is not a major, uh, not, not a major positive theme in television. And it's just like everything that you, everything about our culture sometimes can be, um, either non-Christian or borderline anti-Christian, and you're called to live that different kind of life, it can be tough to do that day in and day out, week after week after month after year, especially if there's hardships within the church. And it's like, okay, I'm finally going to go to church, and I'm going to get a reprieve from, from so much of the, the pressure around me. And you go to church, and sometimes people don't get along, and sometimes there's, there's new frustrations and pressures there. And there can be a real temptation. In fact, there is a real temptation. In fact, I've seen it. I, people who I love and care about have turned back and they've walked away. They've walked away from the church. They've walked away from Christ. And the book of Hebrews is written because it seems that there is a community where that type of pressure is mounting. And there are people who have become, become to make it a habit of forsaking the gathering together. There are people who are thinking about going back to their former way of life. And page after page of Hebrews is trying to encourage people not to do that. And really, as you're getting close to the final admonitions of the book, he tells them in chapter 10, you have need of endurance. Don't forget what God promised. You've already overcome certain persecutions that came your way, whether it was people being thrown in prison or whether it was the seizure of your property or whether it was public ridicule. Like you've already endured some of those things. So don't give up now. You've already shown that you can overcome because you had a hope. You had a hope in a better promise and hope in a better possession and hope in a, a great reward and hope in what God has said. So don't give up on that and go back to a former way of life without Christ. That's a dangerous and bad place. That's a place where it, that leads ultimately to judgment rather than to the, the grace and salvation that we have in God. And so he is trying to encourage them to look at the examples of people all around you, people you've known about your whole life, who have endured through this hardship. They didn't just look at the persecutions around them, but they put their hope in a future which they could not yet see. And that's what chapter 11 is. It's a righteous one who lived by faith. And faith, he tells us, is putting your hope into that future that you cannot see. The, putting your trust and your confidence in God, who you cannot see, who made promises that you cannot see, and living for those instead of the momentary pressure 
to turn back and to abandon him or to walk away from him. Be faithful. The ultimate example of that type of endurance is Jesus going to the cross and Jesus suffering immeasurably out of love for us. And we're called to look to his example and to follow him in it. He is our author of faith, uh, is the word, way that word is translated. But the word author, I think it really has the idea of like the, the trailblazer, the one who's leading the path, the one who's creating the path for you. Follow that path. It's like the author is the one who creates the story. He's created the path for you. So follow it and, and trust him in it and be faithful through it. Well, chapter 12 continues. Uh, it gives an admonition to think about the persecution that you're going through. Not so much in terms of, uh, of a negative, this is just awful and God doesn't care and I'm suffering. But see if you can perhaps think about it slightly differently. Um, you know, when you're punished by a parent, yeah, it's not fun, but there is ultimately a purpose for it. There's something good. You're learning. You're, you're being disciplined. You're growing to be better, and, and, and you're growing to, to, uh, to be disciplined into what your parents want you to be. Um, you shouldn't think necessarily of persecution as God punishing you, but you can adopt the mindset that it's disciplining you to be stronger. God is working with you through persecution to make you into something that he wants you to be. But the persecution also isn't going to last forever. And as he gets to the end of chapter 12, he begins to talk about the hope that he has been referring to over and over again. We have a city that we are enrolled in. Our, we, our membership is there, and it's with God. And that's the city that we're longing for. That's the city that we're waiting for. He says in uh, chapter 12 and verse 22, as opposed to the children of Israel who went to the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, where they would die if they touched the mountain and they, there was so much fear and trembling, that's the mountain they went to. He says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels and the general assembly and the church of the firstborn ones who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkling and to the sprinkling blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Um, almost every phrase in that climactic paragraph is a reference to something earlier in Hebrews that he has spent some time fleshing out and explaining. Having said that, he then describes what that city or what that kingdom is like. And he says, and ultimately, the day will be like a day of judgment. He uses the language that uh, is often applied to, to various judgments in the Old Testament, where a city or a nation might be shaken. And the idea of them being shaken is like God getting rid of them, God destroying that city or that nation because of what they've done. And he says all created things will be shaken. And out of that, you'll begin to see the things that ultimately remain. The things that even after they're shaken, they remain on the other side. Those are the things that are going to last. And so when you get to uh, verse 27, after saying that he will shake the heavens and the earth, he says this expression, yet once more he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, it denotes the removing of the things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So after that judgment, some things are going to remain. Our lesson tonight is going to come from uh, Hebrews chapter 13. It's like after making this point, he then gets to chapter 13, and it's, it's almost like the theology is done in Hebrews, 
But now he's going to say, all right, so if all that's true, it ought to impact the way that you live. It ought to change your actions. Like there's ethics that are a part of the rule and the reign of God, and you need to live in those right now. The first uh, ethical command that he's going to offer is in chapter 13 and verse 1, where it says, let brotherly love continue. Or at least that's the way it's translated in my Bible. But if you remember, right at the end of chapter 12, the passage I just mentioned, things are going to be shaken, and the things which cannot be shaken, they will remain. When it says, let brotherly love continue, I would translate that as let brotherly love remain, because it's the very same word. And he just used it a moment earlier to talk about there are some things that can't be shaken, and they are the things that remain. And the first thing he tells the church after hearing that is you let brotherly love remain. That's one of those things that will never go away. That's one of those things that doesn't end in the final day, but rather brotherly love continues on. It continues forever and ever and ever. In heaven, when we've been there 10,000 years, uh, I think Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 13. There are some things that are an essential part of our existence now that are a good thing that won't be part of it. Uh, One of them is faith. You know, you don't need faith in heaven because what? Faith is uh, the, the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, when you're seeing, you don't really need faith. You just have sight. You have, you have knowledge. You have experience. And the same is true with hope. Hope isn't uh, something that lasts forever because you hope in that which you don't yet have. It's like, I don't hope to marry my wife anymore. I already did that. You know, I, I, I hope to remain married to my wife. You know, I hope to, but, but there's a difference between that which you hope for, which is future, and that which uh, you're experiencing right now. Love, however, is different because it doesn't matter whether you've been in heaven a day or 10,000 years or whether you're alive right now looking for that blessed day. Love is something that should define you. And so when he begins by let brotherly love continue or remain, he's connecting that back to that idea and saying live now with the love of the kingdom. Don't wait for that day. Let it be with you right now. Let it remain with you right here and right now. And if you do that, that's going to make an impact. It's going to change some things. This word remain, I think it's a really important one. Um, He's used it a number of times in Hebrews, and it's always looking forward to that future city. Uh, So, like, look at chapter 10 and verse 24. Chapter 10 and verse 24. Sorry, 34. I was looking at that, and I was saying, that's not right. Uh, Verse 34 says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Any guess what that, uh, that lasting, the, what's the thing that lasts? Well, it's the thing that continues. It's the thing that remains. It's the same Greek word, meno. Uh, and, and that's the word that he's using. He's saying, in essence, and this, by the way, this paragraph that we talked about this morning and that I just read right there about the accepted joyfully the seizure of your property um, and knowing that you have a better and a lasting possession, and that comes uh, right um, after hearing about those who have been imprisoned, uh, like all of that, the prison, the prisoners, the property being taken, the, uh, the remaining city, those are all words and ideas that are going to be picked up on in this first paragraph of Hebrews 13. Uh, remembering the prisoners, uh, 
not loving your possessions, but rather being willing and able to share them, and also letting something remain. Here he says in chapter 10, we have a, a better possession that remains. Well, we're also told that in that possession have a love that remains. In chapter 12, we read the passage a moment ago, but he talks about there are certain things that after everything is shaken, they will remain. And that heavenly city is one of them. In fact, chapter 13 and verse 14 is where I think he really clarifies. He says, for here we do not have a lasting city. Uh, Jerusalem uh, isn't going to last forever. Uh, probably Maryville won't last forever. We don't have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Um, that idea of that lasting city, that's, that's that word. It's like right now we don't have a lasting city but we're seeking one which is lasting. And so it is interesting just to think about that one word, the number of ways in which it's translated. Uh, in my Bible, it's translated as lasting twice. It's translated as remaining or continuing. But it's that idea of something that endures forever. And uh, the city that we're longing for, that's a city that endures. And the love that we're supposed to have for one another, that's a love that endures. It's also used in chapter 7 uh, when talking about Jesus as our high priest. He remains high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's that, that's that word. And so there are some things that don't last forever. And those are not the things to which he's calling us to give our attention. There are others that do last forever. So when you're experiencing momentary persecution, you put your heart and your soul and your hope into the things that last forever. And there are certain things you need if you're going to get through those. And one of them is brotherly love. So right now, let's let brotherly love continue. That's the call of the Christian ethic. If you want to stay faithful to Christ, a really important part of that is going to be letting brotherly love continue. Like as we started off saying, if you deal with the pressures of this world and then you come into a church building and there is just as much division and bickering and hatred in here as there is out there, why? Like that's going to be almost impossible to remain faithful. Uh, you won't get the rest that you need. The community is an essential part of stimulating one another to love and to good works and to meeting together and to seeing each other. Like all of this is stuff that pops up in Hebrews. The foundation of it all is letting this brotherly love continue. So don't put an end to it because of fear of persecution. Don't put an end to it because you want to go back to a former way of life. Don't put an end to it when things get hard. Don't put an end to it because your brother's irritating or your sister's obnoxious. Like, you're going to run into those things. But let brotherly love continue and let it overcome the troubles that are thrown its way. Uh, one thing that is interesting is that word brotherly love. Um, it's the word Philadelphia. Uh, so the Greek word phileo is the word love, and adelphos is the word brotherly or brother. Uh, and so when he says let brotherly love continue, it's one compound Greek word, Philadelphia, thus the city of brotherly love. Um, one of the reasons that's interesting is because he's going to do a couple of things here where he uses very similar types of words. So when you get to verse 2, the second admonition is not just to let brotherly love continue, but it also says, do not neglect showing hospitality. Um, uh, the word hospitality in Greek, very literally, is love of strangers. Uh, so we, we, we just translate it with the word hospitality, but it begins with that same word, philo, that's uh, the Philadelphia, it's philo strangers, or philo uh, xenia. Uh, so if you were to look at that word, you'll see that it's love of strangers. So it's like, don't just have Philadelphia, 
have philozenia. You know, like have, have love of brother and love of stranger. Uh, that's going to be a part of what the Christian ethic is all about. So as he goes on to describe this brotherly love, he wants them to know that it's not something that remains only internal, but should be external as well. Uh, even strangers get to experience the benefits of Christian love. Uh, so verse 2, do not neglect to show brotherly love to strangers, or strangerly love uh, to strangers, for thi by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Um, so the word hospitality, as I said, it literally means love of strangers. Um, he says to do this. If you were to look at what hospitality looks like in the first century, it's a lot more than just maybe having someone over who's a friend for dinner. Uh, I think that might be, you know, I, I don't think that would be excluded from the definition, but more than anything else, hospitality is what you do for strangers. It's what for you do for the people who can't repay you. Um, and here, he's using that idea of welcoming even strangers into your home. That's, I think, a foreign concept sometimes to us. I know for me, when it comes to, like, the things that make me comfortable, uh, that's not one of them. Uh, having strangers in my house, uh, people who, who I don't know very well. Some people are fantastic at that. Uh, but I often think about, like, well, if I don't know this person, can I trust this person? Can I have my kids and wife around this person? Like, there's always those types of thoughts that, uh, that are in my head, and I don't think those are unreasonable thoughts. I think those thoughts make sense, you know? I don't think this is saying just <laughs> be dangerous with how you act, but I do think it is, there is a mindset that says Christians are the types of people who, when you meet that person who's in need, you are willing to sacrifice your home to share your possessions with them. That's what this whole idea is all about. And he goes on to give an illustration of why it is you might want to do that. Um, he says in verse 2, For by this, by the love of strangers, by this hospitality, some have entertained angels without even knowing. Um, what does it mean to entertain angels? Uh, well, so I think he's making a reference here to a, probably a couple of Old Testament passages, but one clear and obvious one would be Lot uh, there at Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot has some angels who show up there, and he doesn't know that they're angels. When we think angels, we often think of like, you know, halos and wings and glowing white and radiant suits and all that stuff. That's usually not how they're uh, depicted in the Bible. Occasionally, they are wearing white clothes and glowing, but most of that other stuff uh, isn't, isn't, isn't part of it. In fact, a lot of times, especially as you read Genesis, angels, everyone just thinks they're people. It's like they don't know the difference between an angel and a person unless they're, they're told. You know, you might, you might wrestle one all night and then, and then come to realize, oh, there was something more that I was wrestling there. Uh, you might uh, have a meal with one. Abraham does. He has a meal and he doesn't know that there are angels. Lot invites them into his house and the people of Sodom try to, try to beat down the doors to take them, to have relations with them. But why? They don't, they don't know that they're angels. <laughs> that, that's kind of a big problem. In fact, in the book of Jude, there is a point being made about not reviling angelic authorities. And he goes back to what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says they went after strange flesh. That literally means flesh of a different kind. They were going after angels. Um, 
If you read that story, here's what happens. God hears that there's immorality in Sodom. And so God's going to come visit Sodom and Gomorrah and and see it firsthand. He doesn't just destroy cities willy-nilly. And so God's going to see what's going on there. And so he brings some angels to check out the city. And if God is bringing angels to check out your city and the men of the city gather around the door and try to beat it out to to rape the angels, that's a problem. Uh, Clearly, this city's not what God wants it to be. Uh, They failed the test in the most catastrophic way possible. And so because of that, uh, you had Lot, who was saved, but everyone else got destroyed. When he says, some have entertained angels without knowing it, there are some who, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse and immoral city, they still were willing to entertain strangers. And they came to find out they saved their household because these weren't just any old strangers. These were actually angels from God. I don't think that the the book of Hebrews is trying to make a point one way or the other about how often that might happen in a person's life. I, I often, you know, you get the question, well, does this happen today? And I think, in my mind, you're supposed to live as though it does. Like, that's your answer. What, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you should entertain strangers because there are some who have brought angels into their homes without even knowing it. If you don't know the person, remember that. Uh, so you could say, well, it does or it doesn't or whatever. You're supposed to live as though it does. Um, he does mention that they did it without knowing it. So anytime if like someone's telling me that they know what the, it was actually an angel with them, well, I think, I think maybe you're, maybe. Uh, but he doesn't say you would know it. It seems to be something that even if it happens, you're unaware of it. So treat everyone that way. Treat every stranger you see with the possibility that this might actually be someone from God. This might be someone who has, and if you'll do that, if you'll see people in that kind of way, you'll probably learn to be a little bit more generous, a little bit more sharing, and a little bit more hospitable. One of the difficult things about practicing hospitality like that is it does mean you have to share your possessions. It does mean you have to share your home. Um, That's an idea that the Hebrew writer will come back to a a couple of times, but if you look at chapter 13 and verse 15, this is where he, he gets into it a little bit more. He says, do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. That's what you're supposed to be doing, doing good and sharing. You let brotherly love continue, so you'll share with your brothers. At the same time, uh, you'll even share with strangers. You will do good and you'll share because you don't really know who that stranger is. It may very well be someone, uh, it may very well be a test, just like Lot was going through. And so make sure you don't fail it. Um, So having said that, he then moves on into verse 3 with the third admonition. Not only let brotherly love continue, but let stranger love continue. But not only that, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves uh, are also in the body. So he says, remember the prisoners. He's mentioned earlier in that paragraph that we started with in chapter 10 when he says in verse 34, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So two ideas right there. One is they cared about the prisoners. He's saying, don't stop doing that. You have people who are in this Christian fight with you and their lives have now been turned upside down because of it. They are prisoners. Share in that with them. 
Endure with them. Uh, Don't forget about them, but actually remember them, care about them, reach out to them, act in kindness toward them. Try to, in any way that you can, lighten their burden. Um, At the same time, if you accept joyfully the seizure of your property, you're doing that because your property is not the most important thing to you. So two mindsets to develop are not to be willing to share, even with strangers, certainly with your brothers, but also remember those who are going through hardships. Remember those who are in prison. Share in the unfortunate fate of your brothers, because that's what brotherly love looks like. So if you do first one, you let brotherly love continue, when you see your brother thrown into prison because of the Christian walk, well, make sure that you are a part of that also and that they know that they're not alone. They're still loved in that. Um, Verse 4, he moves on to the next ethical appeal. Let brotherly love continue. Love angels. uh, uh, I mean, love strangers, uh, because you may very well be entertaining angels. Uh, Remember the prisoners. And then verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor above all, among all, uh, or in all people, like, Among the community, make sure that marriage is held in an honorable position. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Adultery and fornication are a way to defile and to dishonor the marriage bed. Um, God has a way that he wants sexual relations to be enjoyed. And they are supposed to be enjoyed. Uh, They are allowed to be enjoyed. God created this world good. And life is good, and that which makes life is good. Uh, I think sometimes um, in churches, there's so much preaching against uh, sex that people tend to forget that it actually is a good thing that God created to be enjoyed, to have a couple grow closer together, to be experienced with one another. It's a good thing. But it's a good thing when it's done in honor and when it's done uh, in the manner that God prescribes. And so in verse 4... He's telling the church, make sure that marriage is something that you honor and the bed is something that remains pure. The bed can be very, very pure. The bed can be a very good thing, but it's something that needs to be done in the way that God calls for us to. Fornicators and adulterers are those whom God will judge. Rejecting the marriage bed and seeking pleasure elsewhere is something that brings about God's judgment. Those types of pleasures have a proper place, and God has gifted that to us. Um, But to reject that gift and to seek it elsewhere, this passage says, brings about the judgment of God. One thing that's interesting is that word fornicator. It's used earlier about someone who, when I think about his sins, fornication isn't usually, you know, first on the list. It's used about Esau. Uh, In uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 12 and verse 16, Uh, backing up to verse 15, he says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And make sure that there's no immoral uh, or godless person like Esau. That word immoral in my Bible is translated as immoral, but that's the same word. It's the word pornea, or uh, it's the word that you get uh, fornication from. Let no fornicator or godless uh, person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
So if you ask me the definition of fornication, I'm not usually going to say, well, if you sell your birthright uh, in order to eat a meal, that's, that's fornication. Uh, I generally tend to think of it in, in sexual terms. So it's kind of strange that that's the, the word that's used here. But I think there's a reason for it. I think that's often what fornication is. It's selling your birthright for just a momentary pleasure. So often it's you have something that God has given that should be beautiful and good and long-lasting, like marriage, and you end up trading that. That's what adultery is. You end up trading that gift of God for a meal, for something that's momentary, for something that you'll enjoy, and then it'll be gone and done, and then you have to live with that decision you've made the rest of your life. That's the decision Esau made, and he says, don't be like that. It's a foolish decision. Being a fornicator is a foolish decision. Being an adulterer is a foolish decision. Honor marriage. Honor the marriage bed. And don't bring about that sort of judgment from God. Finally, uh, in chapter 13 and verse 5, he goes again to this idea of wealth. I do think this is going to be something that pops up a lot. Um, I think you can't do verse 2, you know, showing hospitality to strangers without verse 5. I don't think you can do chapter 13 and verse 16 do not neglect doing good and sharing if you don't get verse 5. Uh, verse 5 is how you open up the idea of sharing with others. I don't think you can accept joyfully the seizure of your property unless you get chapter 13 and verse 5 down. So chapter 13 and verse 5 becomes foundational to enduring persecution and them taking your possessions. It becomes foundational to sharing with other people, helping those in need, practicing hospitality. It becomes foundational to uh, being able to endure financial hardship. Chapter 13 and verse 5 says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Don't spend your whole life chasing another dollar. Don't spend your life thinking that money is the most important thing. Don't think that you can only have peace or security or, uh, you know, a stress-free life if you have money. And I think that so often happens. We think, well, if I just get this job, which makes this much money, then my stresses will be gone. And what so often follows is new types of stresses. Because people tend to spend that money on different things. Or you put your money somewhere that you think is safe. Turns out not to be all that safe. And all of a sudden, you have these, these anxieties that are now, like, cast upon you. Um, there's... When it comes to hardship or when it comes to, um, to stress and aggravation, so often the thing that we think is causing our aggravation isn't actually it. Uh, what I mean is, um, imagine you want a job because it pays this much more money. And you think, if that'll happen, then I'll be able to pay off my credit card, or if that happens, then I'll be able to, to get this car that I want, or I'll be able to take on vacations. Or You have all of these things, right? And then you apply for the job, and you go to the interview, and you're really excited about it, and it turns out you don't get that job. All right, then you're frustrated, and you're mad, or you're brokenhearted, or whatever it is. What actually caused the pain? Was it not getting the job? Well, there are seven billion people who didn't get that job, and they all seem to be fine. Uh, it wasn't the act of not getting the job. It was that you fell in love with the idea of the job. And I think so often that's, that's what happens with the love of money. Um, we get so attached to the idea of it 
that when the bad thing happens, so you might still have more money than a lot of other people who, who are fine and happy. But all of a sudden, it's because you have fallen in love with it that it becomes so much more difficult to take. Loving, loving something, thinking that you can't have contentment or peace without it, that's ultimately what becomes the, the biggest problem. That's what becomes the biggest hurdle. That's what leads to the biggest heartbreaks. And so when he says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, that, that is what's essential to having a peaceful life. Not having enough money to have peace, there is, there's, there is a level of income, certainly, that will help. You know, if you can have shelter and, and food, like, you need necessities. But uh, beyond that, uh, quality of life actually isn't impacted tremendously by the amount of money you have. If you have enough to survive, you'll see that there are people with a lot of money who are not happier. Their lives are not better. They might have that one thing more than you, but that one thing is not what this life is all about. And so make sure that you are free from the love of money. And one of the beautiful things about letting brotherly love continue and the idea of being willing to share and do what is good is say, say you, because you're a Christian, do lose that job. Say they do have their property taken. Say you do end up in prison and you get out and it's really hard for you to get financial control again. Well, if you're letting brotherly love continue and you're part of a community where people don't love their money, and in fact, they're willing to share and they're willing to practice hospitality, then all of a sudden you have a community that helps you get back on your feet. Like that's, that's, that's how this community works. That's how the Christian community works together is that you don't, we don't all love our own individual bank accounts more than our brother or sister in Christ. And so when that one is struggling, the community can help. That's Acts 2, and that's Acts 4, and that's the Hebrews. That's how you overcome times of persecution. Because really, persecution can get expensive. Uh, you can lose a lot when the church is being persecuted. And if you love your money more than you love the church or the person next to you, then all of a sudden they end up having really hard choices to make. But if they know, I can stand up for Christ, and the people of Christ will still be there for me. I'll still be able to have meals and a roof over my head because there are people who will practice hospitality. There are people who will welcome me into their home. All of a sudden, you can overcome persecution, and you can stick with Christ. We can make persecution easier on one another by following these ideas that are given here. Um, certainly, neglecting people in need, sleeping with your neighbor's wife, loving money more than your neighbor, like all of these types of things, they kill a community. <laughs> like, you're not going, if you have persecution and then you have those types of things added onto it, you're not going to endure. In order to endure, this becomes the life of people who stay faithful. And so when he says, don't spend your life with the love of money, but be content with what you have, that contentment isn't only a philosophical idea that you have developed over time and practice thinking, okay, I am content because I have this much money instead of this much money. That might be a part of it, but the contentment actually comes, as you read this passage, from something much deeper than just a different budget. The contentment comes from a relationship that's worth even more than your budget. The contentment comes from a relationship you have with someone, verse 5 continues, for God had himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. When he says, don't love money, but be content with what you have, for God says he will never leave you or forsake you, you might think, well, what does that have to do with money? And that's kind of the point. 
Contentment isn't only found in, in how much money you have or your budget. Contentment can be found in understanding that even if I don't have a lot of money, I have God and that's more than enough. Um, I, I love an idea that pops up repeatedly in scripture that it's like, as long as I have God, I have, God is the good in life. God is the good life. And so if you get God, then you can always have confidence that you have the greatest gift this world can offer. So don't spend your whole life chasing money. Money's not a good replacement for God. Sometimes we think that it is. Sometimes we think, well, either God can give my food and shelter or money can, and I can see money. Uh, and so that, that makes it a little bit easier to, to put our hope over there. But ultimately, God is the one who provides all things. And so God tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we tell him, and this, by the way, these are the, this whole section, uh, these ethical appeals, it, it contains this twofold quotation from the Old Testament. One is a promise from God saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the other one is our response to it, that we should be able to say, even when we've lost our money, even when we're being persecuted, even when we're suffering hardships, we can look back to God in verse 6 and with confidence and boldness. And the reason we have confidence and boldness is because God just told us he would never leave us. We can boldly respond, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's how you can overcome persecution. That's how you can overcome the hardships in your life. You can look at your bank account or you can look at uh, the, the prison that may be facing you and in their context. You can look at some of these things and you could be terrified or you could say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And if these Christians are taking these words to heart, you know that you have God with you and you know that you have a community of people who love you, who are willing to help you, who are willing to stand by you, who are willing to visit you, who are willing to protect your, your home and your family. It's like all of this taken together becomes central for the idea of enduring through the hardest possible times. If you can get these right, then you can have a community that can endure anything. And that's really what Hebrews is trying to produce, a community that can endure and stay faithful through anything. And so I love the idea that that's going to happen, and God's going to say, no matter what comes your way, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And we can say, well, if that's the case, if you're my helper, then I have nothing to fear. What can man do to me when I have God? So the question uh, I guess that we need to ask ourselves is, do we have God with us? Uh, is God our helper? Have we accepted his help or have we rejected him? He will never reject us, but have we rejected him? Uh, and if you have, you have a God who's open and willing to take you right back. You have a God who loves you very much and who has so much wanted to have a relationship with you that he's given his only son in order to make that possible. So take advantage of the grace and the goodness of God. He's offering it to you. And if we can help you do that tonight, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.